Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hi, Jim. Hi, everyone. Nice to be back. It's almost the end of August, so we're going to be back to our normal routine of two podcasts a week, hopefully from here on in. So uh, the end of the year begins, and we won't mention the C word, but uh, it's going to be looming soon, particularly in the context of world trade, which I'm going to talk a little bit about later on. Uh, We've got a packed agenda, which we won't, as usual, get through all of, but we're going to kick off with Jim talking about a couple of things that he's written over the last few days, so bang up to date. You've written one report, a pre-budget submission, uh, I believe, and something that you've also written for the examiner that uh, has appeared today. So, Jim, why don't you start there? Hi, Chris. Um, I'm intrigued on talking about the C word with you later on. Um, no idea where you're going to go on that one, but I look forward Christmas, to Christmas, Jim. Christmas. Christmas. Yeah, I've no idea why you want to discuss it in September, Chris, okay? It's still um, only August, mate. We are at that time of the year when the pre-budget submissions are being sent into the Department of Finance um, from various bodies and interest groups and so on. Um, I'm not sure these reports actually have any real impact on the Department of Finance, but um, I think bodies need to be seen to be submitting these to justify their existence. Um, I get involved in quite a few with and for different organizations. I've just done one 
for the Institute of Professional Auctioneers and Valuers. Um, that is one of the um, real estate representative bodies in the country. And um, I, I guess uh, I, I don't get involved in these things unless I sort of believe in, you know, what's being proposed, what's being suggested. Um, if you look at the facts of the housing market that we've discussed numerous times on this, Chris, the market is characterized by very strong demand, limited supply. And despite the claims of some in recent times, I would describe them as anti-science types. There is a view out there that increasing the supply of housing or rental property will not get prices or rents down. Um, I, I find that an, a difficult argument to comprehend. But, you know, we, we are in a market where there is very strong demand. There is limited supply. Uh, that's manifesting itself in very high prices, very high rents, the homelessness problem, um, and serious difficulty for many people in getting on the housing ladder. And, and there is a, a view out there in many quarters, a populist view, that there is one sort of silver bullet solution to this crisis, and that if you do that, all else will will be solved. I don't believe that's the case. Um, I think the the housing market, as we've discussed many times, is an incredibly complicated market. The dynamics of it are driven by many different things from economics to interest rates to credit availability to demographics and culture factors as well are very important in there. So there is no single solution. So I put forward um, a number of different suggestions um, that will, I think, address both the supply and the demand side of the market. I'm not going to go through them all, just a couple of the headline ones, um, I guess. But none of these suggestions should be seen in isolation. And since this report was published, um, I've got a lot of mainly negative feedback by people picking out one of the proposals saying that couldn't possibly work, but they cannot be viewed in isolation. They are all part of this myriad of demand and supply factors um, that need to be looked at. Um, all of these things wouldn't solve the problem, but I, be I do believe they would go some way towards actually alleviating the problem. Uh, the, the first one uh, re revolves around uh, the VAT content in a new house. Uh, the average new house in Dublin is valued at about 380,000 and roughly 12% of that or close to 50,000 euro goes back to the exchequer in VAT receipts. So we have a situation where people buying houses are taking out mortgages, they're borrowing money to actually pay back a VAT bill over the lifetime of the mortgage. So I am, and of course, this does add to the cost of delivery for the developer as well. So I'm arguing that the um, VAT rate should be reduced in 13.5% to 5%. That would put an extra 27, 28,000 into the pocket of the buyer. That is, sorry, it would bring down the price of the house. Of course, the problem here is that um, you reduce the VAT and the developer doesn't change the price of the house. And suddenly that VAT reduction feeds into the profit margin of the developer. That's obviously something that does need to be avoided. So, but I, I don't believe it's beyond the ingenuity um, of our tax authorities, particularly uh, to come up with tax mechanisms whereby the, the VAT rebate is given provided uh, the property is delivered to the ultimate buyer at the lower price. Okay, and I make some suggestions as to how that might be done. The second one 
from my personal perspective, is a little bit more controversial in the sense that the central bank a few years ago introduced prudential mortgage lending rules, limiting the amount of money that people could borrow for house purchase. Um, that's first time buyers, second time buyers, and indeed those who are buying for investment purposes. The central bank has prudent limits in place to prevent people from borrowing too much. And that certainly should be one of the lessons we learned out of the 2007-2008 crash, that um, if you if you lend too much money to people, people will borrow too much money. And that then creates a serious personal vulnerability, um, vulnerability for the financial system and indeed for the overall economy. So I am 100% in favor of these um, mortgage lending restrictions. But I do think, you know, from time to time, when it becomes obvious that they are having distortionary impacts in the market, they need to be tweaked here and there. And the proposal I am making is that um, for people on salaries of up to 60,000, be it a single or a joint mortgagee, that they would be allowed to borrow four and a half times their income rather than three and a half times at the moment. Because in the context of Dublin, for example, a three and a half time income limit effectively rules an awful lot of people in relatively good jobs out of being able to get on the housing ladder. So um, that's those, those are some of the proposals. I have no idea whether the Department of Finance um, will listen to those, but um, I do think there's, there's a lot of stuff in there that really housing policy should think about. Jim, I don't know whether you've seen it, but in just today's FT, there's an article by their new Ireland correspondent about these topics. And she quotes the statistics that I think a lot of us are very familiar with and a particular story about a development going on near Crow Park and the way in which lots of flats being built there are, are meeting lots of local objections. The thing that particularly caught my eye in this report was the quote, and I know we've seen this before, that in Ireland as a whole, there are currently 2,455 homes available to rent, the lowest on record. I think that's probably a daft.ie uh, daft quote. The other thing that she does is say that um, the break-even for builders on a two-bed apartment is 450 grand, 450,000 euros break-even. And that speaks to what must be extraordinarily construction costs, the, the cost of building materials, labor and land. Do those figures resonate with you? And if they do, would you agree that, as you said that the problems are complicated, but when you start thinking about a break-even cost on a two-bedder of 450k, that speaks to incredibly deep and complex problems and I think makes the point for you in one simple statistic. Or am I, am I missing something? No, no, I, I read that article with great interest and um, it's, it's, it's not the sort of article you'd like to be sending out there into the world about Ireland, but it's in the Financial Times. So obviously it's going to be read by a lot of influential people, but it does highlight very clearly um, the serious crisis in terms of the housing market here. And, um, you know, those, those figures that she quotes, um, yeah, certainly I've seen lots of evidence that those figures are true. Uh, there's a lot of variables in there, depending on how much was paid for the site, etc., etc. But construction inflation is going through the roof here, pardon the pun, at the moment. 
um, and that is further complicating which is what is an already difficult situation. So unfortunately, this is a dynamic situation. Various variables in there are changing on a daily basis. Um, and that's why extreme state intervention is required to try and break down those barriers to housing delivery to make sure we can deliver housing at um, a price that's viable for buyers particularly. This reminds me of a favourite theme of mine that uh, a, a good friend of this podcast sent in some great comments last week. And one of the things that Ross said was that we are, uh, in a particular way, uh, his his remarks were in the context of environmentalism, um, but I think they have general applicability, that we're becoming obsessed with process and not with outcomes. And there are lots of examples of what I think he meant by that. And in this context, the process that we seem to have gotten ourselves into is waving our arms around, as you say, waving a magic wand around and saying, well, it, let's increase supply. That's the process um, with some vague outcome of making housing either more affordable or better or, or something. And we're not focused enough on the outcome of having more affordable housing. Because if you focus on the process by simply saying, build more houses, it reveals incredibly shallow thinking about the process. If it costs 450 grand to build a two bedroom flat, what's actually wrong is, is contained in that statistic. And so you, you shouldn't be saying just build more houses. What you should be saying in order to achieve the outcome that you want is that you've got to get the cost of building this stuff down, not the final price, the price coming down or not being as unaffordable as it would otherwise be is the outcome that you want. But the way in which you get there must include, one presumes, getting these costs down. And is anybody thought, talking about it in these terms of getting housing costs, building costs down? Are we looking at the wrong thing, do you think? Well, Chris, I have just described one such measure. Uh, 12% of the price of an average new house uh, goes to the state in VAT. So that builds into the cost of delivery. Um, I, I, I'm just... I, I just so I, I think that's relatively straightforward, okay. But there are other costs of delivery that are trickier to try and address. Um, you know, we have globally over the last twelve months a serious increase in lumber prices or timber, as we call it, this side of the world, um, and other building costs. We also have a significant shortage of um, workers in the construction sector here, despite the fact we still have some thousands. Um, of construction workers signing on the PUP. So uh, addressing those issues is more difficult. So that's why what I'm trying to get at here is, you know, I, I totally agree with you. You try and address the various costs of delivery, but one of those has got to be also the treatment of the price of development land. Um, the Kenny report, which probably predates me being born, I'm not certain, um, you know, it was a it was a visionary piece of work that was done many years ago that was always ignored, but it was basically designed to try and control the cost of development land for building houses. You know, but I I, I take your point, Chris. Um, I I I think there's an awful lot more. Uh, there's not enough discussion on the various measures that need to be taken, and uh, this a lot of this course is just driven by um, politics as well. It's and we, area. of course, we see yeah. that everywhere in which uh, a politician usually comes up with a, a headline or a slogan, uh, let's have more affordable housing, vote for me and I will give it to you. 
and more generally we have politicians everywhere not just in Ireland but certainly here in the UK all the time much worse than Ireland making promises that they know that they can't keep but seem to resonate with with enough electors enough voters to to get them into power and no action to deliver on the promise because the promise uh, is undeliverable because nobody thinks about how you're actually going to get that outcome. So more affordable housing as a slogan is all very well, but it reveals such a shallowness of thinking in that it, it, more affordable housing is the end result of a lot of things that you must do. So the, the sloganizing, if you like, should be focused on the deep thinking and problem solving analytics that you need to do in order to get the emergence of the outcome that you want. So, yeah, we want better and more affordable housing, but maybe the slogan should be get housing costs down to the builder, not and that produces the outcome that you want. But nobody of course, nobody of course puts it in those terms. We're just thinking about this particular problem as we think about so many problems today in the wrong way. Yeah, but there's, there's also the case that um, we need to take a much more holistic view on the housing market. Uh, the only debate we really hear in this country is about social and affordable. That is the political narrative. There are many different components of the housing market. Um, there is social and affordable. Uh, there is the upper end of the market. There are owner occupiers who you know are trading up. There are first time aspiring owner occupiers there are people who want to rent the market is not just one single thing it's made up of a number of subcomponents but unfortunately a lot of the debate tends to focus on one or two and actually if you addressed all of those subcomponents they would positively reinforce the outcome on other sectors so for example if you actually you know addressing some of the measures I'm suggesting about reducing the VAT rate, about lifting the income limit for certain categories of borrowers. And I'm not talking about going berserk and lending as much money um, as possible because we know where that lends us. So this is sort of a nuanced suggestion. But But these things are aimed at if you get more people onto the housing ladder, that then takes those people out of the rental market. Okay, so it takes pressure off of that. It takes pressure off of the housing assistance payment that costs the government a lot of money. So the the whole thing is interconnected. But unfortunately, it is not treated in that manner. It's false framing. The idea that it is is indeed vote vote for me and I've got one or two buttons to push and I will solve the problem. It's just barefaced lying. The right the right framing is that this is an incredibly complicated area, which uh, you need to produce a multiple hundred page plus report on to uh, begin to think about all the various components, all the various buttons that we need to push, the different levers that we need to pull and in which direction in the hope that everything interacts with each other to produce this outcome that we want. And I don't sense that anybody is doing that. Enough on housing, Jim. Let's move on to what else did you write about? Yeah, uh, I I saw um, some comments from Michael O'Leary of Ryanair last week, where he was basically arguing that because of the treatment of the aviation sector in this country over the last 18 months, that it would take four to five years for a meaningful recovery in tourism and aviation in this country. Um, So that got me thinking about the whole tourism thing. And, you know, what he's saying in terms of 
aviation and connectivity does resonate because Ireland's connectivity, which has been a key selling point for what is one of the smallest and most open economies in the world where tourism, foreign direct investment are so important. Our international connectivity has been an incredibly strong selling point. A lot of that has been destroyed over the last 18 months. The question is, um, is this a permanent thing or is it just temporary? Uh, But people within the aviation industry believe it is going to take a long time, if at all possible, to build back all of this connectivity. So that that definitely poses a challenge for the tourism sector. And it also got me thinking and writing about um, one of the key components of our tourism offering is the restaurant sector. I was down in Waterford for a few days last week, but this is not just in Waterford, it's all over the country. Um, And the level and quality of customer service in many restaurants is absolutely awful at the moment. And I've got talking to um, a number of restaurateurs over the last week or two, um, and they are having serious difficulty uh, with recruiting experienced staff. So bigger restaurants are poaching the more experienced staff from the smaller restaurants because they can afford to pay more. Um, We have a number of people on the PUP um, who couldn't be bothered from a financial perspective, coming back into the workforce at the moment. So there's all sorts of things happening there, but there is a serious labor issue in the restaurant sector, and it is definitely diminishing the quality of um, customer service. So without a decent restaurant offering, um, Ireland's tourism product is going to be damaged. Uh, There's no doubt about that. And here again, Chris, of course, this isn't, I'm, I'm not coming out with slogans because this is also a complex area that does require many facets of um, policy. Yeah, it's not confined to Ireland, as indeed the housing problem isn't. A, lo- a restaurant local to me here in the UK, uh, and a very successful restaurant pre-pandemic, uh, has tried to reopen post-pandemic, announced over the weekend that it's closing permanently for the simple reason that the entire cohort of chefs, from the senior chef to the most under-chef, have all left. They've left to go to other jobs, one to become a, a, a delivery driver, another to become, I, I believe, a house husband, and another to pursue a different career. And the list goes on. This is not a unique set of circumstances. The restaurant trade here is suffering in a similar way to your describing through staff shortages. It, it's, it's quite extraordinary. And it, it's a severe, it's a severe problem. Um, the labor shortages are, are, acute in many different sectors. There's a hope in the UK that when the pandemic unemployment assistance payments end in September, I think it's the end of September, that a lot of these workers will suddenly and magically reappear. Um, That may well be the case to an extent, but I can't see it being to uh, an extent sufficient to alleviate what what is quite an extraordinary tight labour market. Yeah, Chris, and I just asked something in that regard. Um, you know, some people would argue that the reason why these restaurants are having such labour market problems at the moment is because wages are too low. It, it strikes me that there may be some truth in that. I mean, it's it's not the highest paid sector in the economy. There's no doubt about that. But who do you blame for that? I mean, I have looked at the margins being earned by many restaurateurs over the last couple of years and there are exceptions, but a lot of restaurateurs are not making a fortune, you know, given the time 
and the capital they invest in their business, uh, the margins are pretty meager. So if they end up paying significantly higher wages, the obvious implication is that it gets passed on to the consumer in higher prices. But there is serious resistance to that. And that speaks to a wider problem. Another example of the thing that you're talking about there is here in the UK, the haulage industry reckon they're 100,000 drivers short uh, relative to before the pandemic, that an awful lot of drivers have left the country or have left the the driving market. And a lot the government has responded to, to the haulage industry's requests to allow Eastern European drivers back into the country post-Brexit with allowed raspberries and said no, because Britain voted to end free movement of people. The, the people have spoken, so therefore we must honour what they're saying. And the government has explicitly, in writing, said to the road hauliers, you've got to pay your workers more in order to attract more drivers into the industry. Superficially, that seems plausible. But again, it's an example of this superficial, not terribly deep thinking going on that seems to be applied to all sorts of different economic and financial and social problems today. We've talked about them in the context of housing. But if you think about lorry drivers, it's the same thing at the point you're making about the restaurant business, that if, if, you, if you're going to pay lorry drivers more, it's not bashing the, the bosses that uh, seems to be so beloved of, of UK commentators in the wake of all of this, is that they too operate on quite tight margins in a very competitive industry. And wages are in fact going up for drivers as a result of these shortages, but they're not having the desired effect because of course it takes time to train them. And if somebody's, desi- if somebody's decided to leave the industry, they've left. What ultimately must happen, just as you were saying with the restaurants, that it'll be the consumer that has to pay more, It'll be us that has to pay more for our deliveries, either the deliveries that are made to our doorstep with increasing frequency these days or via the deliveries that are made to our shops. Our prices must go up to pay for the higher wages. And so we need to have an honest debate about this. If we want to pay these people in these sectors, hospitality and driving being just two low paid sectors, there are plenty of others. Ultimately, it's us that are going to have to pay their wages via higher prices. And when you put it in those terms, which, of course, nobody does, people start to recoil from that. Uh, It's it's a bit like the debate over taxation. You often see lefty liberals talking about taxes being too low. We need to put taxes up to do this, that and the other. But what they really mean is they want to put somebody else's taxes up. Nobody wants to bear the costs, the societal costs of doing the right thing. And if the right thing is to get low paid wages up, then it's us are going to have to pay it. And again, where do we see this debate couched in these terms? Yeah, absolutely, Chris. Um, I just want to move on, make one final point on the tourism piece, um, because I think what you've been describing there, there's there's a lot of stuff we need to discuss um, in in that context in the future, and we will. Um, But the other point I was making in my examiner piece this morning was that Ireland's most popular destination for inward tourism is Dublin. And I don't know, have you been in Dublin city centre recently? I've been in a few times in the last couple of weeks and it stinks at this stage. Um, the smell of urine on streets, uh, grass growing on footpaths. Um, there, there is a menacing air in many streets um, with, with open drug taking, with all sorts of potential and actual antisocial behaviour boiling over. So I really do think 
that to rebuild the most important element of Ireland's tourism offering, which is the capital city, and indeed of Ireland's economic offering, Dublin City Council and the force of law and order really do need to um, start making some hard decisions to rebuild the city. But I, I will leave it there. Um, a, a few, this time last year, or sometime in the past year, I have a brother in San Francisco that I've mentioned a few times in this podcast, uh, but he was on a bit of a road trip and sent me a lovely T-shirt from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And of course, the reason for that was because it is the Mecca for central bankers and economic types. And the weekend just passed, we had the annual symposium of central bankers in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And um, what did you make of it? Well, we had the keynote speech from Jerome Powell uh, on Friday last, and it really was an as-you-were speech, I think. The markets liked it. The US equity market went up strongly in the wake of it, and so far doesn't seem to have had second thoughts, as it quite possibly will do and often does in these circumstances, but so far so good. And the reason for it was that, yes, he said that the central bank could maybe kind of sort of think about taking its foot off the monetary accelerator later this year. Um, and that in the jargon is called tapering. It might do and it might not, he kind of hinted, depending on the data as it comes out. So it was a very equity market, stock market friendly speech. Uh, it didn't scare anybody. And going into it, people thought that he might reflect better the comments that other Federal Reserve governors are making, who seem to be more keen than him on tapering, taking their foot off the gas. But I think it's also instructive that Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, has rode in behind reappointing Jerome Powell. And I think this is one of the reasons why she thinks it's a good idea, because he clearly is still on the side of the monetary angels in the sense that he wants to keep the US economy going. He's not frightened of inflation. He's not frightened of all these supply bottlenecks, tight labor markets that we're seeing also in the United States that we're seeing globally. So he told us to watch the data and he said that he would react to the data. But it was it was nothing that scared the horses. So it was a nice speech from a market perspective. But what it means, of course, is that we're back to data watching. And later on this week, we've got the bellwether release of U.S. unemployment to employment and unemployment data on Friday, the most closely watched statistic in financial markets each month. And I suspect the markets will then take their cue from that, trying to interpret Jerome Powell's remarks in the context of the incoming data. When we worked in financial markets um, together many years ago, um, it was it always fascinated me the way from time to time different economic indicators became the focus of market attention. Uh, but we're very much now in the realms of watching the employment report, as you say, because um, I guess in the current environment, the first place we do see embedded inflation coming into the system would be the via, via the labour market. So that's why Friday's um, August non-farm payrolls report will be incredibly um, watched by the markets. And um, I you know, we, we, we've batted this one around about inflation and about central bankers, but uh, we're, we're not making any progress, really. And, and we are no further down the road. But it, it is interesting, I guess, that you see Powell and some of the other Fed officials, you know, um, alluding to the gradual tapering of bond buying. But they also say that there's no hurry to increase interest rates. Yeah, I think it depends on which mirror or lens you look through this. If you look at 
it in a backward looking way, which some Fed governors are doing. They, they see the high inflation rates. They see these labor market shortages. They see the fact that the US economy is flying and they don't appear to be too worried about the economic consequences of the Delta variant and are saying, well, maybe we need to take our foot off the gas. Powell is up to a couple of things, I think. He's, first of all, forward looking. He's, he firmly believes that any inflation problem that is out there, he can deal with. Uh, that's a, a belief. Uh, secondly, I think he wants an inflation problem. And I've talked to you about that before, which is that I do think that there's a social dimension to this economic policy. The social dimension is getting those low paid workers more money. And the way you do that is by having a little bit of wage inflation or, or potentially a lot of wage inflation and accommodating it from a central bank perspective. The third thing I, I think he's up to is that there's a belief in some economic policy making circles best described by an article over the weekend by Martin Sanbu, one of the FT's brilliant economic writers, who says that one of the consequences of running the economy hot in the way that Powell, Yellen, Biden uh, between them are, is that it will finally bring forward, bring forth the thing that's been missing from not just the US economy, but most world economies over the last God knows how many years, and that's productivity growth. Because one of the things, the great mysteries of the world economy has been, despite the adoption of all this fancy technology that we're using here today, nothing is showing up in the productivity numbers or precious little. And that's because, and this is the way in which everything is linked to everything else in this incredibly complicated world that we're talking about, and this relates to everything that we've said today, is that if you can employ somebody on the minimum wage to do something that you would otherwise have to invest in a machine, or actually pay them a bit more to be a bit more efficient. So either get labor to be more efficient and pay them accordingly, or to introduce labor-saving machinery, um, you have to run the economy red hot. And if you do that, you will start to get this productivity miracle that has been so absent from the world economy. It's a big bet. It ain't necessarily so, but I think this is what they're up to. I think that there is a big, big policy experiment going on in the United States with both social and economic objectives. And Powell is very, very focused on this and he's willing to roll the dice. So you have big, big commentators, high profile commentators like Mohammed El Aryan, the ex-chief economist of PIMCO, one of the world's you know huge asset managers. He's now the boss of, uh, amongst many of his activities, of, of, of a Cambridge college, a master. I think is, is what he's called. He says the Fed is making a big mistake. But that's because I think he's looking at it through this backward looking old fashioned lens. And he's not spotting this new stuff that's coming through that Martin Sanbu has spotted. Of course, it, you know, I could be wrong. Sanbu could be wrong. And El Arian is right. But Powell is betting that Sanbu and me are right. So I think that I think it's fascinating. It's, it's going to be years before we know the answer to this. But I think we've got to start thinking about productivity again. And we've got to start thinking about the way in which the future may not be quite like the past, the past that we've grown used to. On the COVID front, you, you mentioned the fact that uh, Jay Powell, you know, is, isn't really factoring in too much on the Delta variant front. But if you look at uh, some of the global headlines that have come out from some, I suppose, interesting parts of the world over the last couple of days, uh, Australia has just had a fresh daily record for infections New Zealand is extending its lockdown in Auckland. 
Um, in the United States today, public health advisors are meeting to discuss the launch of the vaccine booster program, which could be kicked off as early as September 20th. And in the southern states of the United States, some hospitals are actually running out of oxygen because of rising hospitalization and infection rates. So COVID hasn't gone away. It most definitely hasn't. But if you go about the UK at the moment, as, as I do, obviously, uh, I would sum up the mood here as being it's all over. You can be at social functions, parties and whatever. These days, I was at one yesterday, actually, in which the topic of COVID doesn't even come up. Whereas a short while ago, it was all that anybody could talk about for obvious reasons. Almost overnight, it's become a non-subject. Um, it's as if the population has moved on. COVID is whatever it is, but we're not interested in it. We're not going to talk about it. There's an insouciance, a sort of willingness to ignore the numbers, willingness to ignore the evidence that's building that va vaccine efficacy is waning. Um, the benefit that you get from prior infection is waning. All these things that would normally you would expect worry people a lot are just being shrugged off. So I think people have moved on from COVID, but COVID itself hasn't moved on. So it, it's I don't want to strike a sour note, but um, it, a, it's interesting psychologically and socially to note to, to note that people, certainly in the UK, and I think you said to me the other day, Jim, that the people in Ireland are, are somewhat similar. Ireland and the UK and Cyprus are the top three coronavirus case rates in in Europe at the moment, um, and and but it doesn't seem to matter. Um, long, long may that continue, in the sense that I think the reason why it doesn't matter is that uh, that. The data for hospitalizations and deaths, while worrying and going up, um, are nowhere near where they were when we were in the worst of the pandemic. And I think that that's possibly the explanation, but there may well be deeper psychological reasons. Uh, I noticed that um, Eric Clapton is is uh, at it in terms of he's actually written a protest song uh, about uh, COVID restrictions and vaccinations in particular. So um, I think lots of different people have, have got all sorts of different views on this. Um, but I think it might be well be just a little bit premature to assume that that COVID is, is all over. Interesting to see Captain Slowhand being applied to COVID at this juncture. Indeed. Okay, Indeed. Chris, um, we call it there, I think. Yeah. Uh, thanks very much for uh, an interesting conversation. Uh, I look forward to talking later in the week. Talk to you later in the week, Jim. All the best. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.